Hebrews 13 for the last time for now. I decided this morning that it sometime in the not too distant future might be beneficial to go back and recap the book, but for now this will be our final time together in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, let's go ahead and stand please. And beginning in verse number 22, Hebrews 13, 22. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. And let's pray. Well, Father, I pray your blessing upon us as an assembly that, as always, we would make much of you in part by making much of your word. That we would recognize the Bible as not only the voice of God, but the authoritative voice of God. And so please help us, even in the closing of this sermon, to respond properly to your instruction. And I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may, of course, be seated. Well, as you can imagine, preaching a sermon from the conclusion of a letter poses its own unique challenges. It's not the body of the letter. These are very human instruments. And the writer is now concluding his written sermon to them. And that's, I think you'll see in verse number 22, how he views it. It is a written sermon. To these people. So, on the one hand, it's not the main body of material, and we are not approaching it seeking the deep doctrinal truths that we might earlier in the letter. But on the other hand, we do not wish to be dismissive of it. It is the word of the Lord to us. Unlike perhaps much of our writing style, the pastor is not closing his sermon by recovering his main points something that I will do at the end of my message to you this morning, recover my main points. But what he is doing is talking to them with the main main idea of the sermon in his mind. So he is giving to them two things to do. There are two things to do in this passage. And there is something to remember. And that is how he ends this letter to them. So let's begin by looking at them. What is the first thing that they are to do? They are to put up with the preaching. They are to put up with the preaching. Verse number 22. I beseech you, brethren... Suffer the word of exhortation, 
for I have written a letter unto you in few words. I'm not trying to be funny. I didn't know if anybody would laugh when I put it that way, but that really captures the gist of what the pastor is saying to them. Put up with the preaching. I beg you, I beseech you, to suffer. I beg you to suffer the word of exhortation. And I just want to take a couple minutes and talk about that word because that's exactly what he is saying to them. Put up with what I've said. Put up with the preaching. We find that word in the the Greek word in Matthew 17, 17. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? How long will I have to put up with you? And that is the word that is used in most of the other passages in the Gospels where Jesus poses that kind of question. How long do I have to suffer you? We find it in Acts 18.14 when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason, here's the word, that I should bear with you, that I would put up with this. But I'm not putting up with this. This is your religious squabble. You figure it out. Or 1 Corinthians 4.11, even unto this present hour, we we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it. We put up with it. Or Ephesians 4.1 I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness with long suffering. Here it is forbearing one another in love. Putting up with each other. What an amazing thing to say about a sermon. We had a man, this was a number of years ago, he visited for a brief amount of time on Sunday nights, and he said to me one Sunday night as we're walking out the door, he looked at me and said, you apologize too much. Well, I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Can you imagine any pastor coming to the pulpit and saying to the folks, please put up with this. And I think that he calls it a sermon, folks. I think he means sermon, put up with the sermon, because of the word exhortation. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but in Acts chapter 13, this is said about Paul. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And then Paul stood up, beckoning with his hand, and said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. And then he preached. So to go back to Hebrews 13.22, folks, here is the first thing to do as the pastor closes out the sermon. He gives them this exhortation. He begs them to put up with the message that he has preached. And then he goes on, folks, to call it a letter in few words. And again, 
I don't think the pastor is trying to be funny or he's trying to be cute. When you think about how much of the Old Testament is devoted to the practice of the Old Testament system, and when you think about the history of Israel, and when you think about what is at stake in the letter that he has written to them, although it is the longest recorded sermon in the New Testament, it's just a few words. So when I read, I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words, I ask, as would many people, why would you have to put up with it? Why would anybody describe the proclamation of the word of God as something that has to be endured? And by the way, just for your own peace of mind, if you're thinking through this, I said three points. We'll, I'll spend the vast majority of the time on this one this morning, the first one. First thing to do. Put up with the preaching. Why would anybody be need to told that? Well, folks, to some extent we need to be told that because listening to preaching is contrary to our nature. I mentioned to you that the pastor has concluded this letter by not by recapitulating his points, but by certainly referencing some of the things he said. Hebrews 5.11, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need the one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and to become such as have need of milk, not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is skillful in the word of righteousness, for he is obeyed, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both evil. You know, folks, the right kind of biblical preaching requires the exercise of your mind. It's not entertainment. You can watch a sitcom with part of your brain. But you really can't engage the Bible with part of your brain. It's work. And the sermon matter that he preached to them is deep, doctrinal, and at times difficult If you would just go back in your mind, and I'm not asking you to start reading the book of Hebrews while I'm speaking to you, but just think of the contrasts that he has made. This is better than this, is better than this, not as good as this, this is better, this is superior. The pastor has at times taken us all the way back to the Garden of Eden and walked us through the Bible history. Just a few words. Someone, I don't know how accurate this is, someone has said that if you just began reading the book of Hebrews out loud, you could finish it in about an hour. Why must it be endured? Preaching kind of cuts across the grain of 
the human mind. The content of Bible sermons, folks, is not always encouraging and uplifting. There are ministries, there are people, and he's not really my favorite whipping boy, but Joel Osteen is on record. Why do you you not preach about eternal judgment? Well, people have hard lives and they need to hear encouraging and uplifting things. How about this? People are eternal beings and they need to hear the truth about where they're going to spend eternity and what it's going to look like for them. The reality, folks, is that very often the content of the Bible contradicts our human pride and the pastor is dealing with them with something that when you think about it, if you really think about the points that he has made in five times in the sermon, he has brought them to this critical moment. You know, you better keep believing what you say you believe. You know, you better keep practicing what you say you believe. Well, who wants to come to church and be told that? Why must preaching be endured? Why must somebody put up with it? This pastor is not the only pastor to recognize that preaching to people is not necessarily the most popular thing that you can do. Paul will write, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. It's just not something that we naturally gravitate to, folks. Why must we endure it? Why should we endure it? Well, because it is God speaking. If I could put it this way, why did you put up with it when your parents were giving you a lecture? Or why do you put up with it when your boss is reviewing the quality of your work? Because someone in authority is speaking. Hebrews 12.5, Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Very often, folks, the Bible is a corrective book. The Bible is a book filled with no's. And it's filled with no's even to people who live under the reign of grace. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth, if ye endure chastening. God dealeth with you as sons, for what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? From the very beginning of the letter, from the very beginning of the sermon, the pastor has been reminding them that what he has for them are God's words. And 
Any faithful pastor, folks, is going to use his time in the pulpit not to tell you what he has to say, but to tell you what God has to say. This was his opening barrage. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So, what is there to do? Here is what you are to do. Put up with preaching. Sometimes the content is intellectually demanding. Sometimes the content is emotionally discouraging. Sometimes the perspective is daunting. I have got to do that. God would really tell me to live like that or to deny me that. I exhort you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation. That brings us to the second thing to do. Verse number 23 and 24. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty with whom if he comes shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints, they of Italy salute you. Second command, second responsibility. Two responsibilities and something to remember. Responsibility number one, put yourself under the authority of the preaching. Suffer the word of exhortation. Second responsibility, remember the fellowship of the saints. Remember the fellowship of the saints. It is obvious from verses 23 and 24, folks, that the people who are the original recipients of the letter know who is writing to them. I mean, he refers to himself here in verse number 23 in the first person. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom if he comes shortly, I will see you. So they obviously know who the I is, and we don't. And again, I don't want to go back and revisit this at length, because it's a little bit of an academic exercise that we do not know. I have stated my case that I do not believe that it is Paul, and I would base that on two things. Number one, I just don't believe that Paul would write Hebrews 2.4. And having said that, let's just take a moment and turn back to Hebrews chapter 4, and now let me contradict what I said to not spend a lot of time on this. Well, just put up with it. I don't know what to tell you, right? Let's just begin at verse number three. He's, 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 whoever this man that is writing this letter is writing, how shall we escape, right? All of us, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? So there's the original source, the Lord, confirmed to us. Now he, this writer is including himself in that by them that heard him. Heard who? Heard the Lord. Now folks, I just don't think that Paul could say that. 
God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. I don't think that describes Paul. Paul was an apostle. Paul heard the Lord. Paul had the sign gifts. Paul exercised those gifts. This man is not identifying himself as one of those. He is identifying himself as one of those that heard them, not as being one of them. Now again, would I go to the mat over this? No. Would I fight you over this? No. How many times have I referred to Paul as being the author and corrected myself? Too many to count. But I don't really think it's Paul. I would also raise the question about whether or not it's Paul just from the way that verse number 23 is written in chapter 13 in which Timothy seems to be given the leadership assignment here. And again, that's just me. I wouldn't fight you over this, not for five seconds. I would hope we would never break fellowship over this. If we come to the end of this and you go, Pastor, I'm just pretty sure that it's Paul. But God bless you. And I mean that in all seriousness. I don't think it's Paul. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty with whom if he, come, if he comes shortly, I will see you. I'm waiting on Timothy. Well, again, I wouldn't go to the mat over this, but this is someone who was looking to Timothy as leader, and Paul just didn't really look to Timothy as leader. Paul was clearly the leader in his relationship with Timothy. But again, that's just me. That's not what the whole text is about. If we go back to Hebrews 13, verses 23 and 24, right? Here's here's what we know, right? Timothy has been put in prison, which is something the Bible doesn't record to us until we get to the book of Hebrews. We know that Paul spends a lot of time in jail. We know that Paul writes to Timothy from jail. We know that Paul wants Timothy to come and visit him in jail. But now we learn something new. Timothy's been to jail. So if Timothy gets out, and if he comes soon, I will come with him, and I will see you too. Because I'm with Timothy. Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints. We've looked at this, Hebrews 13, 7. Obey them that have the rule over you. That's a reference to the time past, prior Bible writers, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you, submit yourselves, be persuaded by them who are looking out for your soul. And here, just the generic, and I don't mean in any way to demean it, but that word salute is used 60 times in the New Testament. It just simply means to greet. An intimate greeting, a friendly greeting, the way that we would say, say hi to somebody. Send them my greetings I was telling <clears throat> I was telling the lady this. We, we, we were at teachers' convention last week, and, and by the way, my apologies for not mentioning to you that I wouldn't be here once. I just completely oversight on my part. And so we're sitting, we're sitting at a table at a lunch table, and a lady comes over and sits down, and we begin to talk. Complete stranger, kind of sit here. What do you do? You know, we're chatting back and forth. Comes to find out, she says, "Oh, I knew, I knew some folks from Omaha." I used to be involved at Temple Christian Schools, you know, and she gave us her name. And she said, I used to know the lady, the secretary over there. I said, what was her name? Well, she just kind of looked at me when I asked that question. She said, Diane. So I gave her the last name. She said, yeah, do you know her? I said, well, they go to our church. Yeah, we know. We kind of know who they are. Right? <clears throat> Send greeting. <clears throat> Send greeting. Right? That kind of stuff. So 
So I get on my phone and send my wife a text because I know that Diane is at our house. Tell Diane that we're having lunch with, you know, out of the blue, that kind of thing. That's all great, great the saints. So what's going on, folks, in verse 23 and 24, right? We've had, we have had major monumental Bible doctrine. God has spoke to us over the course of time, and now he has spoken to us by his son. And he's telling us about his son, Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest, who is after the order of Melchizedek, who has completely done in one act what the whole Levitical system couldn't do. And that whole Levitical system is picked up and set aside now. It was simply for our instruction. It was never for our spiritual salvation. There was just an illustration of that, and it's all done and set aside. And let's talk about all these people and all the lives of faith that they lived, and let's not forget this. We're one big family, and we are. And again, folks, this kind of cuts the grain of what is so prevalent in American Christianity, the Lone Ranger mentality to being a Christian. I'm just going to take my Bible and go to my place and worship God in my way. But it really doesn't work like that. We don't really get that latitude. We are, we are in many ways a homogenous unit. Brothers and sisters in Christ, bought by the same blood. And again, the pastor is simply referencing something that he had taught them previously. We see Jesus, who is made a little lower than angels, For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man, for it became him. For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory. Right, Our common denominator, folks, true common denominator, is not the sport we like, or the team we favor, or the brand we prefer, or the cars we drive. It is Christ. Christ our Savior. We are united in Him. Hebrews 2.11 For both He that sanctifies, sets aside, and they who are sanctified, we are the ones set aside, are all of one. We all come out of Christ. And so we have then, folks, an interest in the lives of other of God's people. This is one of the reasons that we are to pray for them and that they are to pray for us because we have an interest in the lives of other people and we're not permitted, we're never encouraged and we're not permitted simply to live selfishly. Hebrews 10.32, Call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated he endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while she were made gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while she became companions of them that were so used. For he had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. So what are we to do? As he gets to the end of the sermon, two things. Put up 
with the preaching. Recognize it for what it is. It is the Word of God that can be difficult and demanding. Right? This is not, folks, this is not multimedia presentation time. And I'm not opposed to using multimedia in the sermon. I'm just saying it's not a form of entertainment. And it is not the job of the pastor to figure out how to make this as simple and as painless and as mindless as possible. Preaching sometimes must be endured. It engages our conduct and our minds in our lives with the Word of God. This is what God is doing. This is part of the exercise. And then remember the fellowship of the saints. We are, we are part of the people of God. And again, I think that we understand that. I'm not, I'm not preaching at you from a position of frustration or anger. I'm just saying this is what he is arguing in the text, right? We have, and we'll make an announcement of this. I'll make an announcement of this again this morning. We are recommending to you that we send a, a sizable chunk of money that God has raised through us to give to one of our missionaries to use in another field. Why would we do anything like that? Because there is the fellowship of the saints. That's why. And then finally, to go back to the text, there is a reminder. Two responsibilities. Remember, folks, that preaching time is not always fun time. It requires a work of the mind by God's will. And remember that while you are an individual, you don't just get simply to always live as an individual, but as an individual who is in fellowship with other members of the family. And then verse number 25, a simple reminder of Bible fact. And if you look carefully at your King James Bible, you will notice that the verb has been supplied. This is not uncommon because we tend to always use verbs in our sentences but understand that the pastor is not using it that way. He is making a simple declaration. He's not hoping that grace will be with them. He is stating it as a fact, the grace of God is with you. Grace with you all. Amen. And this is not simply a benediction. If there's any benediction to be found, it is in the simple expression, amen. We as New Testament saints, folks, live under the reign of grace. One of the difficulties, and and, and I, again, I don't want to go back and spend a lot of time on this, folks, but one of the difficulties that these believers face that you and I do not is that part of the difficulty of listening to the preaching was that it demanded of them to abandon something that they were very familiar with. Imagine, folks. I mean, just imagine if you could in any way imagine if the content of my sermon this morning was, folks, this is daylight savings time, and as you all know, it's been coming. Daylight savings times inaugurates an entire new age for the New Testament church. We are now going to return to the practice of the law of Moses. And so just a reminder to you that next Saturday is the Sabbath, so there will be no raking of leaves, no going to the grocery store, no watching of Netflix. Next Saturday is the Sabbath. 
And just a reminder to you that now that we are under the law once again, there will be no eating of pork or of shellfish. And gentlemen, just so that you're aware of this, next October we've all got to go to Jerusalem for a couple of days. And you've got to factor into your schedules and the allotted time that you have off that now three times a year we're all going to have to get on an airplane and go to Jerusalem because we're under the law. Now folks, if that was the way it really was, we all understand that there would be a lot of pushback. But their world is, is the same kind of world it's just inverted. They've been living under the law and now they've come to Christ and now the pastor is saying to them, look, the law was good, but you're not under the law any longer. You're under grace. And we live under the reign of grace. This is the way that God interacts with us. It's not a moral free-for-all like some people teach it, but it's, but it's not the law of Moses either. Romans 5.17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of the one free gift came upon, life came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is not, folks, an empty formality of closing a letter grace be with you it is a declaration of the lives that we live as God's people and the pastor reminded them periodically in his sermon that they were living under the power of God's grace Hebrews 2 9 we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for every man Grace is a powerful thing. Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Grace is a powerful thing, not a secondary thing. Hebrews 10.29, Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Grace is a powerful thing. Hebrews 12.15, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Grace is a powerful thing. Wherefore, Hebrews 12.28, We receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. God is offering his grace for us to serve. Right? To make, a, to make a point of it. We all know. We all know how we're praying for the upcoming election in, on Tuesday. We're all cautiously optimistic that there will be some turn in the political winds. 
But what if we're surprised? And what if what we expected doesn't happen? Well, folks, we will still live under the gracious reign of God's grace. And we will still be levied with the same responsibilities to be faithful to him. And we will still have the same capacity to be faithful to him. Because he is the God of all grace. So God's grace is with us. Remember that. Remember that we are saved by grace and we serve by grace and we are empowered by grace. Remember God's grace. So here then are the final exhortations of the pastor to the people in this sermon. Put up with the preaching. It's good for you. It's not always fun for you, but it is good for you. Remember that you are part of God's family. Love them, pray for them, talk to them. Be at peace with them, love them. And remember, you have God's power. You have God's grace. Let's pray.